to the Pursuit of Crappiness podcast. I am David Glado. I am your host, and uh, today I am joined by Mr. David Lee Simmons. I like that Mr. part. Yeah, Mr.'s <laughs> always good. Uh, you can find him at, at several locations, actually. He's an entertainment reporter extraordinaire. Uh, he is the editor of Pop Smart Nola. Correct. And... Uh, it's really a pleasure having you on today. Thanks. This is great. I love the topic. Yeah, the topic, as it were, uh, we are going to be talking about Spotlight. Um, in case you're new to the program, uh, generally speaking, I like to... It, it's going to be kind of an entertainment podcast, but in, uh, for the most part, we're going to talk about movies here and movies that we as individuals are passionate about, um, but also movies that maybe general audiences are passionate about, things that are critically well-received or, or lightning rods, etc. And so we are going to talk about Spotlight today, the 2016 Best Picture winner for the Academy Awards. This is a movie that obviously uh, has a lot of merit to it, <laughs> yeah. at least according to a lot of people. And I think that... On that basis alone, it's it's worth talking about. I'll start I'll start us off by talking about basic plot elements, and then we'll deal with some topics that might not be considered spoilers. Um, and then the second half of the podcast, we'll try to give everyone a warning and uh, and then head into some stuff that might be a little more revealing, at least uh, for the second half of the movie. There. There comes a point where the the main protagonists in the movie um, receive uh, a tip on uh, there being abuse, uh, child abuse amongst the local priesthood in Boston. Um, the uh, the main characters are uh, journalists at the local newspaper, and uh, the story kind of unfolds from there. Very, uh, very light, cheery film. Uh, you know, <laughs> kind of, the kind of stuff that you know. We feel good movie of the year. Feel good movie of the year. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's the basic structure, which is how deep does this scandal go, and 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 are they going to reveal a lot of it or not? The f- the first kind of theme that comes to mind for me specifically is the journalism aspect of it. Mm-hmm. We are both journalists, or have fancied ourselves journalists at varying points in our career. With long histories in newspapers, print newspapers for sure. Yeah. Um, and just the Woodward and Bernstein appeal of this movie, where... I don't know what your reaction was to the movie, but one of my reactions was immediately wanting to go find a story. <laughs> and dig. Yeah. And really dig. Yeah. yeah. Well, well we, we come at a time, there are many things to talk about with this film, but one light theme is we come at a time when TV has become kind of dominated and sometimes overrun by the procedural. And there are some really great procedural newspaper movies and as a procedural, it does a surprising ability to make the process of news gathering, if not scintillating, certainly interesting. And I think that it does, we may have seen some of these elements before in movies like All the, All the President's Men. Of course. But, um, but it was really beautifully laid out how to get a story of this magnitude 
This is the meticulous, sometimes mundane, but often revealing of things that you wind up doing over the course of the process of, of news gathering. I think we could both talk extensively about this concept of the process. Um, it's not a, a thing that, I mean, for better or worse, we live in a world now in journalism that doesn't lend itself to that as much as it once did. Right. And I think everyone would agree with that statement. It's just not as conducive of an environment now for this kind of story. For a variety of reasons. Yes. Yeah. And and so it's the the story becomes timely on that basis alone. Um, even though the events of the movie occur in two thousand one primarily. Um, we we look at it now as people who work inside the business as as being emotionally resonant, I guess. Yes. It's just very um very appealing story for basically anybody, I think, that, mm-hmm. that got into this business thinking, I can change the world and I can do good. Well it also shows how a story can affect everybody on personal and professional levels. Uh uh when you look at some of the reporters one appears to be, a, at least a couple of them appear to be lapsed Catholics. Some are not, um, but not necessarily you know, diehard. Some are ambivalent about chasing the story for a variety of reasons. One is challenging the institution that was the archdiocese in Boston. But when you look at Rachel McAdams' character in particular, she's a reporter who kind of goes to church with, I think, her either her mother or her grandmother. I forget yeah, which. Yeah, grandmother. Grandmother. And you can tell she's doing it because she loves her grandmother, which is why some of us still go to church. Um, but but it, it, there's personal resonance. One of the reporters lives literally around the corner from a house that he knows something bad is going on, but he can't prove it. So it's uh, literally happening in our own backyard, and we're also going to church um, feeling the anxiety and ambivalence of what we know is happening culturally in the church, but we're attending church, or we're just giving up. Yeah. And and we're just like, no, I'm done with the church. So this is a city with a strong Catholic and Irish Catholic foundation, or Irish foundation, and uh, or Italian. And so it, it resonates in this community, and, and with the reporters on both personal and professional ways. When you talk about that, uh, for the characters it resonates, and it resonates here. I mean, when yeah. you we are a very strong Catholic community mm-hmm. in New Orleans. Um, Once you get past New York, Chicago, and Boston, it gets... New Orleans is right in there. In yeah. terms of the top five or six cities when you think of a major American city with a deep Catholic um, culture. One of the things with, uh, when we watched the film, I, uh, my wife, uh, Kate, um, who's sat in on a couple of these podcasts, uh, she... She immediately goes on to the uh, internet to research what's go- what she's seen in the movie. Yeah. Um, be it the actors or the characters or, or what have you. And in this case, she immediately looked, not to reveal too much, but at the very close of the movie, they reveal just the number, the sheer number of communities where this scandal hit. And it was a staggering list. Um, and it included New Orleans. And so that was one of the very first things that she did was look at the scandal and how it affected this community. I'm, I'm looking at the nominees for Best Picture uh, right now, and I'm trying to think of a movie that sends us down the Google rabbit hole more than Spotlight might. Mm-hmm. You know? And to that end, we should note that Jason Barry 
um, a great local journalist and author and, and writer about jazz music as well as uh, other you know, themes, uh, was one of the first authors to really write a, a comprehensive book about it. Uh, Lead Us Not Into Temptation, I think, is the name of it. Um, but a New Orleans author. Absolutely. And he was in at the beginning of this. And so, and I think that Spotlight, it should be noted, you know, really tries to make note of the fact in the movie, I'm not sure if some people were happy with the total way they tried to approach it, but they were trying to say throughout the movie that this had been reported before. The Boston Phoenix had done a really great investigative right. series on it. It's not that it hadn't been reported or reported well. It, as the incoming editor, played by Lee Schreiber, tries to point out, is you haven't really gotten the big cheese. <laughs> right, yeah. and, and how can you, right? This was the impossible get, was to try in whatever way to um, tap into the deep institutional malfeasance that was going on that could have even gone to the Vatican, for all we knew, at that right. point. And so... Um, it really does send us in this search of of all the things that all the the facets of the scandal. It's kind of a funny thing to think about because, like here here I am talking about a journalist's reaction to the film, or um, you want you immediately feel empowered and you want to go make a difference in the world. Um, but uh, my wife, who who works in marketing and communications of a different sort, not journalism per se. Uh, she immediately went down the, the Google uh, rabbit hole, as, as you described it. Yeah. And it's just... It I makes think, researchers and news people of us all, doesn't it? Yeah. Or investigators. Yeah. It's, it's, it's fascinating in that respect. I, you know, there's not a lot of content out there nowadays that makes one feel that way, I don't think. Well, that's, you raise an interesting point in that we live in a slightly ironic time in that while newspapers... And, and media in particular, not just newspapers, but, but TV news as well, broadcast news as well, um, has never been more compromised by time and money and profit margins and, and all the challenges that we face. But we also come at a time when information is so accessible right. that, that we've come to a place, kind of this weird crossroads in media and journalism where, on the, on the one hand, on the positive side, we, we old guys kind of forget news is being broken and exposed just in a lot of myriad ways there's just not being things aren't being exposed like they were before not Mm -hmm. as structurally or formally as we'd like not as professionally and with due diligence that we'd like but bloggers are breaking stuff and you know flashpoints and investigations are starting up from this news over on this website but at the same time it is kind of sad and sobering that at a time when we all, and especially the best investigators of us, have access to find information and get it out there, um, there's so little appetite at the upper levels to really appreciate kind of letting loose these dogs, you know, to really, now that we've got the information, a true professional is like the last person who is as empowered as others to, to go after the big story. That's kind of the sad thing. Because this is a 15-year-old story now. Right. Yeah. And, well, that had been reported for years before that. Yeah. But it's a weird cautionary It's 15 years old. Uh, it's, it, I, I think, I don't know, it, it's, it's tempting for the Academy to try to make some kind of a statement. 
and it's tempting for them to come out and say, well, this is what we're trying to say here. And I feel like the perfect example, and I always try to be positive here, um, but the perfect example of this, it might be Crash when it won for race relations, basically. Yeah. Um, and yet did it in a very ham-fisted way. And, and a it, well-intentioned move. Yes. But, but it just didn't work for me at the time. It doesn't work for me today. And again, I... I'll, I'll probably give it another chance at some point and, and try to highlight the positive there, but I, it, it would be tempting to look at Spotlight in the same regard um, and say, well, they were just trying to, you know, talk about the importance of the press or or slam the Catholic Church, you know, and this is the this was their. Um, uh, underlying mission in what they chose to do here, and and I don't see that. I really don't. It's a better believe, film than that. Yeah, I I just don't believe in that at all. It's it, it rises above that. Well, when you look at Tom McCarthy, and and the movies that he's done before this, uh, and also one of the co the, the co screenwriter uh, who has a background in not just films, he also wrote for The West Wing, which heartens me, warms my heart to no end. He, what's interesting is he did these small films that they, they say they call small films, which sounds condescending but or patronizing, but you've got The Station Agent and The Visitor, which were very good, very small, personal, beautifully told stories, but with a pretty simple arc, a pretty small world. And here he's taking, I think, a similar tonal approach to what's kind of an epic story, mm-hmm. journalistically speaking, right? Right. And what's great is it's almost like an anti-epic. Like, imagine if, you know, um, Spielberg had done it, for which is the most... Uh, yeah, he, yeah. He would, what, 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 King what, epic, right? What would he have done? He would have done some beautiful, kind of sometimes bravura filmmaking with uh, an insanely um, cringing ending that wasn't needed, but it would have been beautifully edited and beautifully acted. And this was not the anti-Spielberg movie so much because in a way it feels emotionally or intellectually epic. Right. And uh, But it's also a very precisely made film. And I don't think it has a, a bad note. There's maybe one moment where we get Mark Ruffalo. Yes, who, yes. They, they recruit <laughs> about two or three actors who are sort of known for their scene chewing. And for the most part, they kind of stay in their lane a little bit. I don't know, I'm mixing metaphors a little bit. But like Ruffalo... Uh, uh, Goes a little yeah. Oscar. He goes a little Oscar. Goes a little Oscar, and that's of course the scene that they show at the Oscars. Yes, yes. Right here's Kate, my Oscar grab. Kate and I were so amused by that when we saw the scene. We were like, "Here's his Oscar scene, right? You know, where he just rails against the institution. We got to get the bad guys. Yeah, they did yeah. this. But with, if we can change subject for a sure. second, there, but the acting in it is. I could talk about the acting about it forever because McCarthy recruits this cast of actors. Um, some of whom have been known for their scene chewing and, and, and who are great actors. I think Lee Schreiber is an amazing stage actor. My wife saw him in uh, Glengarry Glen Ross, um, but not sometimes a subtle actor, sometimes right. a pretty out. And Ruffalo has done a, a range of roles. Rachel McAdams, who really hadn't done a role like this before, which is not to say that she couldn't. But when you look at every actor, a Michael lot of Keaton him, as Batman, exactly who, with Birdman. <laughs> yeah, you know? I mean, he got there with he finally got his Oscar for just totally, you know, going nutty with Inrito. But um, 
you have performers who both have TV backgrounds and character acting backgrounds, and then you have some of the scene chewers. And all of them, but for a couple moments, are having these sort of pitch-perfect performances that rarely go outside of themselves. Right. And it's a great... I love great ensemble acting jobs. I don't need the one... You know, the one guy to carry the film. I love it when everybody's working in sync, which newspapers, we should say, have to be. Yes. Newspapers have to be great ensembles, whether they're arguing or agreeing or working together or sometimes butting heads. And he captures a lot of that spirit. You you can make the, I think you can make a very strong argument that this subject matter needed that. I mean, it needed a depth touch. It needed uh, characters who aren't, characters in and of themselves but who are just playing their roles staying in their lane as you said Mm -hmm. because this is not light fair at all this is not the kind of thing that you can just go kind of silly with yeah and and if you make yourself the the story you lose sight of the bigger story i think Mm -hmm. well and i think that it's it's you know spiritual father is all the president's men and what made that movie so great with Sidney lemmett was I think I've mispronounced every other name by the way. Uh, Sidney Lumet. Uh, uh, the only one I've noticed so far has been Ruffalo. I think Ruffalo. It's Ru- I think it's Ruffalo. Ruffalo. Yeah. Sorry, Mark. That's fine. Um, Robert Redford has certainly had plenty of understated roles, but Dustin Hoffman over the years definitely developed a, a reputation as as being quite an outsized personality as an actor. But he still had been known by the '70s for for some subtlety in his performances. And that movie with Jason Robards, oh my God, mm. who was just an amazing job as Ben Bradley, not overacting, not overplaying. And Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman playing these two very different types of reporters. And Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein clearly have proven to be very different journalists sure. since then. Absolutely. It's a perfectly calibrated uh, set of performances. A young Robert Walden as, as Donald Segretti. Segretti? One of the cheap, the, the, yeah. The cheap you're, again, you're gonna, yeah, you're gonna test my lim- limits of my knowledge, though. But but th- that's still an ensemble perform, uh, an ensemble movie with two pretty strong leads. Um, but but it's a pretty straightforward and dry, you know, repeating of the book that they wrote, mm-hmm. um, with only a few moments of melodrama. But when they bring it in, it's pretty well brought. <laughs> yeah. And in Spotlight, I think you see that that same thing. I think the Ruffalo moment um isn't so cringing when you look at why it's needed anyway true stories are always difficult in general because you do want them to be as close to the source as you you can i think as as a viewer anyway and obviously the job of the movie maker is to make something that's compelling for the viewer Mm -hmm. and so you do have these inaccuracies from time to time that just kind of if you're aware of the story and you're familiar with it, it can it can drive you insane. But I don't think that Spotlight suffers from a lot of that at all, and uh, and that's appreciated as well. Um, I want to go back to one thing that you'd said earlier. Mm-hmm. You were talking about some of the um, the just the Catholic imagery uh, throughout the film, and I think that that's an important choice. In, in terms of the movie and the way that it's shot, you have, and I can think of two specific examples that really jump out at me. You have, you have multiple shots over the course of the movie 
of a church mm-hmm. looming over the foreground. In the background, there is a church. It's always there. It's always, <laughs> always there. Yes. And then you also have, at the opposite end of the spectrum, in the background, if, if you don't see a church, mm-hmm. <laughs> or even if you do see a church, you see children. Right. You see children everywhere in this movie. <clears throat> and those two devices are meant to always bring your focus back to where it belongs, which is this horrible, horrible tragedy. And <clears throat> and I guess like that, this might be a decent point for us to transition into the spoiler warning. And so if you haven't seen the movie, then maybe you can go ahead and uh, turn us off and tune in next time. And it, not a lot of this is actually overly revealing in terms of the movie because I think you can go into this movie and enjoy it no matter how much of the story you're familiar with. Yes. Um, but the reveal of the number of priests, and I don't know the exact number, but I think it I think it started at 90 right. and eventually got down to 70. And that, that was 90 priests in, in the Boston metropolitan area. Well, yes. And... That's jaw. That's a jaw-dropping moment if you're not familiar with the story. Well, what I think is beautiful, just like it's a mystery that kind of unravels, is this onion. The number is part of the onion. You know, the magnitude, the breadth, right, and the depth of. First, you have the breadth of it, which is the how many, which is. But I think that uh, McCarthy does a great job of revealing, like with each interview, and with each investigative moment, the number gets a little bigger. Yeah. And you like going no, nah. and who was it? Um, uh, the one of the editors, um, I'll get his name. He's from uh, he was from um, Mad Men. Uh, he keeps going no. Nah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know exactly <laughs> who you're talking about. So you gotta be kidding me, right? Yeah. Like it's insane. Yeah, and, nah. and by the end of the movie, we have to walk out and go, yes, this is insane, but it's yeah. also real. Yeah, because their starting point was single digits. Yeah, I think it was seven or eight. Um, and this is their starting point. And, and, and it just, as they dug deeper and they dug deeper and they, they found more names and more names. Which and is they, a little bit of a Hollywood convention, you know, storytelling right. for, yeah. for a nonfiction thing or, or, or a mystery or a conspiracy. Sure. It gets bigger. It's bigger than you think. Yeah. You know, you don't know the half of it kind of thing. Yeah. You don't know what you're getting yourself into because the number keeps getting, it's, it's always bigger than you think it is. But the way it kind of drops in. It's not that melodramatically delivered, but it is a little bit like a WTF, you know? It's like, yeah. are you kidding me? And the source that's unseen on the other side uh, of the phone, he's like, well, yes, don't you get it yet? Yeah, and, and that, you're dealing with. that actor was, was fabulous. The voice the on voice. the phone. Right. Yeah, I, I loved that so much because you never see this man and, and he's just... I would challenge the, the listener to find out. I've, I forgot to... I, I wanted to go down that rabbit hole. Why was that narrative decision made? Like, is that kind of the deep throat of all the president's men where... Right. This is a known person. Like who? Why did we never see him? I think it adds to the dramatic tension because there is a scene in the movie where Ruffalo's character is on the phone, I think, with the voice. Okay. And uh, and uh, the voice tells him, I think, something along the lines of, you know, you need to watch your butt here. You need to be 
really careful. Right. right. And then he said, oh, well, wait, what are you talking about? And the phone call drops. And then, like, a second later, someone comes banging on his door. And, and you know, <laughs> it's like, oh, 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 you know, they're What's coming. What's going on? Yeah, the, 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 the priest mafia is coming to get you. Can I correct myself for a second? I sure. apologize. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mispronounce somebody yet again. But okay. where I got Sidney Lumet as the director for All the President's Men, I apologize. Somebody's already laughing on the other end of this. Uh, it was Alan J. Pakula. And I, oh, okay. I hope I'm pronouncing Pakula right. It's either Pakula or Pakula. I think it's Pakula. But um, a great director in his own right. So okay. my, my apologies to both him and Sidney Lumet. Ap- apologies uh, have, <laughs> have been uh, issued. And, uh, I don't know if you do corrections on your podcast at I'll, the end of the show or as they're involved. All involved. 20 of my listeners will be upset to realize that we might have screwed something up there. Right, 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 right. Obviously, the, the, the imagery within the film, mm-hmm. uh, you talked about the lapsed Catholic theme. Mm-hmm. Do they do they care more because they're lapsed Catholic, or do they or do they care less? And and like that that to me is an interesting creative decision. And I wonder how many of the characters in real life might have been might have fallen into that category. You know, like um, because it is something that we encounter in our day to day lives. Uh, well, you don't see, and tell me if I'm wrong. What I don't think you see in the movie is this hot desire among the lapsed Catholics or the sec- the truly secular people or the Jewish people, the editor. Right. The driver is, is, he's, he's a Jewish character. He's yeah. a Jewish character. Um, no one seems to want to say, I told you so, or rub it in, or right. they're dying to have their worst suspicions or hatred or anger or frustration at the church confirmed. Um, they're ambivalent. There is anxiety, and there's a little bit of cynicism, as most journalists have. Right. But you don't necessarily... I mean, maybe with, with Mark Ruffalo, Ruffalo's character, he wants to go get him, and he yeah. is clearly not of the faith. Yeah. But you, aside from that, you don't get a lot of... That's why Rachel McAdams' character is so important. Yeah. She's lapsed, but she goes. So she is as ambivalent as they all are, because she's kind of lost her faith a little bit, but she hasn't lost her love of family and appreciation mm-hmm. for her grandmother going. And there right. are a lot of people who don't go. There are a lot of people who go. I go. And I am not a true believer. Mm-hmm. But, but my wife and her family are devout Catholics. And, and I do go and I get something out of being in the Catholic Church. Certainly. But I also sit there a little bit like Rachel McAdams and going, man. There's so much that y'all could be or should be doing or, you know, I don't get this. But um, that's why I love how they capture that spectrum. I get so much value out of going. And it's and I uh, I don't know how you define lapsed Catholic because um, I'm not sure I would put myself in that category. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, I have not gone with regularity as much lately as I would like. Um, and so... Uh, for me, it resonated on on two levels. One, I can relate to the characters that are all you know struggling. Yeah. Um, but then, just the magnitude of what had happened, I think there's a bit of a tendency for people to kind of stick their head in the sand with stuff like this. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, oh, okay, you know, I knew I know it goes on, and it'll be over here somewhere, and I won't look at it. Right. Um, but looking at it and being forced to look at it, for me personally, 
calls into question, wow, is, th- is this institution itself doing more harm than good? Right. And, and, and like, that's a tough question yeah. to, to, to battle with. Um, because I've always taken a, a, a very personal approach to religion, as I think most people do. And, and it's like, am I getting something out of it? Do I go and do I feel more connected to God? Do I feel better about myself and my own life and my own uh, uh, spirituality? And, 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 it, and if, if those questions are answered in the positive, then that was always enough for me. Mm-hmm. And now... you. I can't help but, you know, begin to wonder about those kinds of things because it, it, it is an, a powerful enough um, piece of art to, to call attention to this stuff. Well, we like to think that however deeply we're religious or people of faith or even spiritually or ethically, you know, or, or as a secular humanist um, or just an ethicist, a couple of things. Are we, are we doing right by everybody else? Are we doing right by ourselves? Mm-hmm. Are we respecting life and, and the people around us? And, and when it gets more spiritual, the question becomes, can I appreciate the, no, the very notion that I am this little small piece of something that's a lot bigger in the world? And, and where is my place in that, that's, that there is something bigger than all of us, whether it's a deity or just this cosmos, you know, right. and and how can I kind of make my way through it without going crazy? <laughs> yeah, and, and but but hopefully also thinking selflessly as best I can, knowing that we try and take care of our own and our family. Sure. And the movie sees a lot of these people kind of finding their way. You know, they right. really are just trying to get through the day and not be jerks and not be depressed or lost. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of lost sheep yeah. kind of floating around <laughs> in this movie. Well, and they're moral people. They're they're trying to right wrongs and yeah. they're trying to do what's right and and bring attention to things that are awful and yeah. and and so the fact that they do it outside of the construct of the church, I mean that's the only way you could do it, mm-hmm. I think. But um, because as we've seen, if you let them handle things internally, then it keeps going on, it keeps happening, and that's right. one of the major themes in the movie, which is. They, they had handled things internally and quote-unquote handled things internally and it was mostly reassigning priests into other precincts. And it wasn't until they did the deep reporting, an outside source, an outside organization did this reporting that you begin to see actual effective change. Well, and this is a good opportunity to bring up, I, I hope, one of my main points and really the thing that resonated most deeply with me was these parallel institutions. This to me was very much a movie about institution and it comes at a time, even though the movie was 15 years ago, it comes at a time, set 15 years ago, the movie comes at a time when our culture, our nation, our world really is wrestling almost violently with our relationships with, with with institutions, whether it's political, governmental, religious, cultural, uh, educational, um, corporate, mm-hmm. um, the internet, television, cable, what have you, we are becoming wired so differently that 
We're having a hard time wrapping our heads around institutions. We are becoming more personalized. Mm-hmm. And back in the two, early 2000s, you had two institutions that were really wrestling with their own identities. You had the newspaper business, which was cratering, um, or certainly starting to crater, um, losing staff, losing revenue, Craigslist, what have you. The Internet was crippling newspapers and challenging their abilities to report. But at the Boston Globe, in speaking, particular, speaking of head in the sand, <laughs> right, 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 um, and and not and and newspapers, not. Uh, you know, full disclosure, people, newspapers are like a lot of us, other institutions in that they're resistant to change, yes. and they are surprisingly hard to adapt to the culture, even though you have an entire staff of each paper that's devoted to culture. Then you have the Catholic Church, which was in, in the city, you know, a very distinct Catholic Church. And there's a key scene in the movie where Lee Schreiber, who is a, he plays a Jewish editor who's come in, Marty, um, I think so. yeah. uh, who has to do his duty and go meet with the archdiocese. You know, yeah. he has to meet with the big kahuna. And yeah, very ceremonial. It's like I got to do it. Yeah, I got to kiss the hand yeah. or the ring. And they sit and they talk. And it becomes a fairly perfunctory conversation with some red flags. And one of them is... Um, you know, Marty basically um, d- politely disagrees with um, the archdiocese's argument that these two institutions need to work together, and we're all a team. And his, right. and Marty's suggestion is, well, we like to work independently because that's the way journalism works. And he's like the archdiocese, like, well, you go, girl. <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> and he hands him his book, you know, and sends him on his way. And that's a key scene because it really shows the beginning of the end of that relationship between the Boston Globe and the Catholic Church as being, in Marty's mind, uh, complicit mm-hmm. in a conspiracy because it's a go-along to get-along world. It's a very parochial city, um, not unlike New Orleans, where there are these deep roots and habits. And they have, but the roots in the newsroom at the Boston Globe have kept them from kind of looking up and looking at the bigger picture of what's going on with that story. And it takes an outsider to come to the Boston Globe and say, you guys are missing the biggest story, the biggest picture. Mm-hmm. And they're wrestling internally with that at a time when they're losing money. And then you have the Catholic Church, which has clearly been and will continue to wrestle with its own lack of institutional control. And it doesn't appreciate how their roots have grown and deepened. So you have two institutions that are really trying to figure their way um, with different sets of challenges, but it's all change. And how one investigates the other, well, it's dealing with its own challenges, I I found to be pretty fascinating. It it really does kind of all tie in. um, Because we we talked about the first part of the podcast with the, the, the institution of journalism changing so much. And we're you mentioned being resistant to change. Um, that, again, that's no secret. The Catholic Church not changing until this, uh, these kinds of reports began to surface in a really immediate and profound way. Oh, we actually do have to deal with this rather than just, you know, send the hide these guys or attempt to hide these guys or 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 or, or play the uh the shell game where we move the shells around and and and, and try to play sleight of hand with people it, i think you really kind of hit the nail on the head there because when when i think about 
when I think about this movie, I think about the journalism side, I think about the Catholic side, and they're not, and they're two sides of the same coin. And it's like you said, there's there's two major glacial <laughs> institutions in this film. Who don't get it. Yeah. And <laughs> they do at first. Yeah. I can think of the sequel to this movie right now, which is yes. that, you know, the uh uh, the newspaper gets hoisted on its own uh, right. batard because it, it's uh, resistant to change and it won't move quickly enough to address right. the the things that that need to be addressed. Well, one of the one of the early signals, and one of my favorite characters, and one of my favorite characters. This is a movie of great character actors, John Slattery from Ed and uh, Mad Men, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the prematurely gray. You know, yeah, he he really embodies the counterpart to the Catholic Church as Ben Bradley Jr. He, first of all, the movie begins with everybody sweating that Marty Baron, played by Lee Schreiber, is going to come in and start layoffs. What is the Boston Globe really worried about in 2001? A new editor, which usually means layoffs right. because the, the economy's cratering. Um, well, the economy for certain for newspapers. So Ben Bradley Jr. is concerned first about layoffs. Am I going to have my job? Uh, uh, number two, then, as they're going back down this old story, he's really hamstrung by a couple different ambivalences and anxieties that don't have that much to do with getting to the story. He's constantly the skeptic in the room, but you're kind of wondering, well, wait, why are you this resistant? I think it's because of culture, and I think it's because of professionalism. We've done this before. Why are you... He just can't, he's kind of incredulous right. on a couple of levels. And when he starts to get pushed, then you start to see the story progressing a little bit. Like he's, I don't remember when he finally gets yeah. it. <laughs> I, don't, I can't remember his moment. But um, he's kind of a key character on that side. Yeah, I agree with that. The, the, your, your, your concept of institutions and, and, and just this, this idea of... Um, you know, again, his motivations are not a hundred percent clear because, like you said, you, there's probably a couple of things going on there. But uh, his lack of willingness and eagerness to challenge the Catholic Church, this yeah. this institution that is so huge and so big and so much bigger than any one person, and he's he's really just kind of speaking for uh, the industry there in that yeah. moment. Well, it's funny, and I, 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 I confess to not being as up on the history of the Bradley family as I should, but it's ironic that a guy named Ben Bradley Jr., um, I, I assume it's Ben Bradley's kid, <laughs> is, is the one who's not, you know, because Ben Bradley Sr. In, um, the, of the Washington Post in, in All the President's Men, he, he was the editor of the Washington Post at the time, he was the one who was, push, who was both pushing Woodward and Bernstein and 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 challenging at the same time. He was the Marty Baron. He was the one saying, you don't have enough yet. Yeah. But he was but he was like, give me more. Whereas Marty Baron was the give me more. But Bed Bradley Jr. in this movie was like, you got to come on. Come on. You got to be kidding me. Yeah. And I wonder if he's thinking as a Bostonian, you know, as a local. But, I, you know, Ben Bradley Jr., I can't remember his roots are. But it's just, as you said before, his motivations are kind of like, because we're all in the movie theater going, dude, <laughs> just like Mark Ruffalo. Like, come on, yeah. let me at him. So. Well, it's really a great 
film. Uh, I'm, I think we can probably go ahead and wrap up our discussion here. I, I don't know if you had any closing thoughts or closing ideas that you wanted to address. I want to go back to what you were hinting at earlier, actually. I would rather you close it, and that sure. is um, the question that we have to ask ourselves as journalists um, is... I wish we could see the spotlight of 2016 or 2017 made. Um, what is the movie that tests the culture of newspapers today or media in general today? You know, mm-hmm. was it one of the worst movies ever was broadcast news with Jack Nicholson <laughs> and Holly on like James Brooks probably should be, you know, strung up somewhere. It's just a horrible movie, but it does kind of hint at the kind of shallow, future of, of broadcast news right but i'm just curious what's the prescient movie to be made for the for the newspaper industry but really the media industry because what's going on in newspapers to varying degrees is happening in other forms of the media we we talked about our, the oscars at large in a recent episode uh of the podcast and and we we talked about how spotlight was a worthy winner and uh i just wanted to reiterate that i think that it was a worthy winner a best picture. I think that it's a movie that 99% of the audience can find some value in. And I think that people should check it out if they haven't checked it out. Although, having said that, I would appreciate all the people who hate that Spotlight one who loved Mad Max Fury Road. I hear you and I feel your pain. Because <laughs> it really was the incredibly well-made, sharply observed spectacle. Yeah. That, that doesn't get the credit that it deserves. But the fact that it even got nominated, I was thrilled. Well, it, I mean, like, honestly, I, there were about a half dozen pictures for me that yeah. if they had won, I would have been, I would have been yeah. happy with it. Yeah, so. that's a good, I would say half of those were pretty strong films, yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, I'll give you a chance to uh, sign off here and um, plug uh, uh, anything you would like to plug. Pop Smart Nola, uh, kind of taking some time away from it for a little bit, but uh, the contributions are coming a little slower because of some other projects I'm working on, but really trying to cover New Orleans culture with kind of an intelligent approach. So popsmartnola.com. We're on Facebook. If you want to check that out, we're also on Twitter and Instagram. So, What's your Twitter handle? Uh, popsmartnola1. Okay. One. Nola1. Popsmartnola1. Pop one. One. Somebody snagged it. Oh. <laughs> Somebody's out there. They squatted on oh, it. Oh, I'll get you. Yeah. Uh, the squatters of the world rejoice. They'll sell it to me for $5,000. <laughs> yes, exactly. That uh, The bargain price of $5,000. But um, uh, you can find me at DaveGlado.com. Uh, I am also on Twitter at DaveGlado. Uh, and also at various sundry other places. Uh, if you follow me at all, you, you know where those are. Um, Including Martin Wine Cellar, because it's right yeah. near the street. Yes, yes. we live right down the street from Martin Wine Cellar, which uh, uh, provided, the be- provided the beverages for this evening. Whether they wanted to or not. Uh, and my, uh, I would also give a shout out to my kids for providing the background soundtrack of the evening. Um, but yeah, that's it for us. So uh, thanks again for joining us, everybody, and uh, we'll see you next time. <laughs>